This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. On today's show, two teens who had been held in a former death row building at Angola are seeking to join an ongoing lawsuit against Governor Edwards over the treatment they endured behind bars. Times-Picayune Baton Rouge advocate reporter James Finn has been following the story. He'll update us. Also, January 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We'll have an encore airing of our 2020 interview with Holocaust survivor Irving Roth. Up first, following Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans became one of the most deforested cities in the country, and the number of trees has continued to drop over the last 20 years. Several nonprofits have worked to replant the city, but in some ways they've been working in the dark without a plan to guide them. That changed last week with the release of New Orleans' first strategic reforestation plan. It calls for the planting of 100,000 trees by 2040. The Environmental Group Sustaining Our Urban Landscape, or SOL, uses volunteers to plant trees in different neighborhoods and helps lead the master plan's creation. The Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker sat down with SOL's executive director and founder Susanna Burley to learn more. So what spurred the creation of this master plan? Like, why is it so important to enhance the city's tree canopy right now? So uh, the, the fabulous Paul Kramer at City Planning did a ton of work to create the city's master plan and then master plan for the 21st century and then the tree preservation study. And both of these show that the city has an understanding that we need a robust urban forest to mitigate climate change. But they also revealed that we need a we need baseline data to be able to appropriately set goals, you know, know, know where we're starting, know where we want to get to, and then figure out how to get there. Um, and anybody who works in the environmental sector, yeah, you already know that our canopy is too small and that it needs to grow for many reasons around our resilience. We're hot. We flood, we live in a bowl, we're coastal, and the effects of climate change are getting worse. So we need an urban forest to mitigate all these ills, to drink up water, cool us down, lower our energy bills, and make us more resilient to climate change. Also, the tree canopy that we do have is clustered in areas that have concentrated wealth. And that's a worldwide trend. It's, it's not just a problem here. Um, and one of the key desires expressed throughout all the meetings, whether they were with citizens or professionals, was that we need trees in every neighborhood um, because everybody needs their benefits. Um, and this plan lays out a roadmap that's really easy to, to digest. It's ambitious, but it's realistic. It has real goals. Yeah, and one of the big goals of the reforestation plan is to have at least 10% of each New Orleans neighborhood covered with trees by 2040. Could you talk about what's needed to get the city there? Yeah, and I just want to first say that that sounds really low, but if you look at the Garden District, for example, I think their tree canopy is 14%. So we have to remember that we're very dense. And so a lower number here may look different than a lower number in another city that has big front yards, for example. But in order to get to 10% in every neighborhood, which will make every neighborhood look kind of like the garden district as far as tree canopy, we need to plant 7,000 trees per year between 2030 and 2040. So between now and 2030, 
we need to scale up. We need to fill in the gaps that are preventing us from planting at that scale right now. Mm -hmm. And there's three primary barriers to scaling up. Supply chain, manpower, and funding. So at Seoul, we primarily purchase our trees from two farms on the tree farms on the North Shore. And the owners of one farm are about to retire. And right now we're completely buying out our growers by the end of the season. So we need more farmers growing trees. We need a wider variety of native species. Um, secondly, we need more people planting the trees. So at Seoul, we're currently planting as many Saturdays as we possibly can with our for woman staff. And we've expanded as much as we can this year to a planting on weekdays. We know we need to be planting more weekdays, but we also have to think about possibly professionalizing some of our planting, um, you know, maybe planting like five days a week with people who are on staff who just, that's all they do is plant trees. Um, there are also other groups in the city who plant trees and it's going to need to be a collective effort and ever in order to get to planting 7,000 trees per year. Parks and parkways in Seoul can't do it ourselves and, and we understand that. Mm, yeah, that is a lot of trees for sure. Um, yeah. And you all also aren't acting alone. Your group held a lot of public meetings across the city, right, when crafting this reforestation plan. What were some of those concerns that you heard? Well, it was really interesting because we heard a lot of the same concerns repeated at each meeting, um, whether they were meetings with professionals, city departments, or with citizens. Um, some of the concerns were how will the tree canopy impact utilities, especially power lines, um, sidewalks? Um, is what kind of maintenance can we expect for street trees? As we all know, there are limited resources at the city. Uh, the perception of risk, because after Katrina, a lot of trees came down and fell on people's cars and homes and et cetera. Um, limited space. Once again, we're a dense city, so we don't have front yards in every area. So where are the trees going to go? And a lack of coordination between city agencies. So, you know, an example, if you're going to do road work and you have to rip up the sidewalk, what's going to happen to the trees? Right. Yeah. And just what are some of those next steps for turning this plan into action? So we got to remember that a master plan is a vision document. It doesn't have the force of law legislation does. So the next step is to turn the reforestation plan into legislation. And keep in mind that we are committed to staying in our wheelhouse, which is planting trees. And legislation is not in our area of expertise. So we're turning the plan over to the Water Collaborative and Jessica Dandridge, who is their executive director. And she has an extensive policy background and she's fantastic. So they're going to take the reins and work to create a unified tree policy, which is our goal number two in the reforestation plan. And in the meantime, we will work with the city to figure out all the scaling up pieces that we've discussed. I've been speaking with Susanna Burley. She is the founder and executive director of Sustaining Our Urban Landscape, or SOUL. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Coastal Desk reporter Hallie Parker with Sustaining Our Urban Landscape, or SOUL, executive director and founder Susanna Burley. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel.
Last year, the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice began transferring youth in detention to Angola, the state's most notorious prison. Now two teens who'd been held in a former death row building at the facility are seeking to join an ongoing lawsuit against Governor Edwards over the treatment they endured behind bars. James Finn is covering the story for the Times-Picayune, back Baton Rouge advocate. He joins us now. Thanks, James, for taking some time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So when was the decision made to house some youth in detention at Angola? And more importantly, why did OJJ make that decision? So this was a decision um, that kind of appeared over a long time, but also all at once. Um, It was announced last summer by Governor Edwards right after um, several youth escaped from Bridge City Center for Youth in uh, outside of Bridge City. Um, and it was also, it also came on the heels of a number of escapes and riots and other facilities statewide. Um, and what we eventually learned from OJJ was that this was envisioned as a place to hold, quote unquote, the most troubled or problematic youth in their system. These are folks who, you know, advocates say are at some of the um, greatest risks of mental health. Uh, side effects, um, and um, but are also uh, causing some of the most uh, problems for OJJ and their other facilities, um, such as you know escaping, some violence against guards in some cases, and um, other destructive behavior, according to what OJJ has told us in these other facilities. So the Angola unit is a uh, it's a 24 bed unit in a building just inside Angola's gates, and it is designed to hold, again, these youth that ODJ has described as the most problematic in their system. Wow. Kids being locked up in a former death row building seems incredibly morbid. What have these youth said that the experience was like, and what do they say it looks like on the inside? Um, We reported uh, a couple of weeks ago on a federal lawsuit that was, or rather a federal court filing, um, that was filed alongside a lawsuit uh, initially filed last year. Um, and this was these do- new documents were some of the first statements by youth who were actually inside of this unit. They describe kind of harsh interactions with guards from the adult system. That's the Department of Corrections. They've described being uh, maced, which is a uh, use of force mechanism that is not common whatsoever in youth jails, but which has actually been used in other OJJ facilities since last summer, since officials brought in guards from DOC to help tamp down some of the incidents that have been happening. And they describe kind of what they said in the court filings was a uh, sort of drop off in the services and uh, recreation, education, then compared to what they've been receiving in the other facilities they were in. What exactly are the state requirements? You mentioned the idea of some treatment and education that's offered to youth in detention. What are the state requirements when it comes to offering these services? What was, is there a specific thing that was not being offered to youth in Angola? So they uh, are expected to receive education, mental health treatment, health care, of course, Um, And the statements of the the youth in these latest court filings are basically that all of those services do not stack up to what they 
had received in the other OJJ facilities that they were housed in before they were brought to Angola. Um, you know, they described fewer opportunities for recreation, time in solitary cells that they would otherwise perhaps have been spending, you know, playing sports or exercising at their old facilities. And, you, you know, with uh, the number of youth that are there, they have also said that they aren't being divided among different grade levels and have sort of been lumped together in terms of the educational services that they're getting. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. We're speaking with James Finn, crime reporter for the Times, Picayune, Baton Rouge advocate. James, you'd think that OJJ might be a little on the defensive side. Have they responded to any of this? OJJ um, has opened up the facility to reporters, actually. They gave us a tour of the facility in October, just a day or so before the first youths were brought there. And, you know, they have been... Uh, straightforward about the fact that this is the product of a system that still needs overhaul. As my colleague Jackie DeRobertis reported quite a bit, you know, these problems uh, at OJJ are years and years in the making. And years ago, the agency promised to kind of overhaul itself and head in a more rehabilitative direction. And, you know, we got an acknowledgement from Curtis Nelson, who is the new head of the agency that much more work needs to be done in that arena um, and that OJJ has not quite met the goals that it set out there. And, you know, Nelson will himself acknowledge that this facility at Angola is kind of a sign of that. It's not ideal by any means, as he has acknowledged. And I, I think that he and other officials would like to remove children from that facility um, as quickly as they can, most likely. That kind of goes into my next question. Is this a continuing problem, or does it look like this is something that maybe Louisiana's going to get a, a grip on finally? Um, it's difficult to say. They've said that they're going to close the Angola facility when repairs to other OJJ secure care facilities are made. Those are facilities um, designed for youth who require like a heightened level of supervision and care compared to less secure facilities. But it's difficult to say when that exactly that will be. Um, OJJ has sort of left open the possibility that Angola will remain open. The Angola site will remain open for quite a while, and we don't know when exactly it will close. And the current lawsuit is still ongoing, so what happens next? That is correct. Um, The lawsuit, uh, there was a series of hearings on it last fall, and a judge ultimately denied an initial request to halt the plan, allowing it to move forward. Um, But the attorneys and the plaintiffs have a number of other recourses in terms of the legal process. And that uh, new filing with the statements of the youth who were being held there or were held there until recently um, is, is part of that ongoing process. James, thanks so much for your time today on this. Thanks so much for having me. Times-Picayune, Baton Rouge, advocate reporter James Finn. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. January 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This prolonged and severe blight on the history of the modern world demands remembrance simply for its brazen execution, a reminder that we are all only as pure as we are subject to our basis instincts. And those instincts may not always be the right choices. Holocaust survivor Irving Roth joined us three years ago this month 
to share his experience and remind us about our civic responsibility to civility. Roth died in 2021, but his vivid recall of the horror of it all still rings true. Here is the encore airing of our chat with Irving Roth from January of 2020. Irving, thanks for taking some time with us today. It's my pleasure. Can you tell me what life was like before the tattoo on your arm? Life was beautiful for me because I lived in a country called Czechoslovakia when it existed before 1939. And uh, living in a small city of about 7,000 people, of Jews and Catholics and Protestants, in relative harmony. You knew everybody then. You knew your neighbors. You knew the people several blocks away. I knew my neighbors. I went to school. It was a public school. I had friends who were both Jews and non-Jews. Did you have any sense of what ultimately happened as you approached your teens? Was there any sense of that coming in the days, the months, the years before it happened? Yeah, it happened step by step. The first sign of the persecution of Jews was very minimal, in fact. We were no longer allowed to go into the park, and I was no longer allowed to go to the beach. And eventually, I get thrown out of school because I'm a Jew, as is every Jewish student in the whole country, and simultaneously, all the Jewish teachers are fired. And how old are you when this happens? By this time, I'm 11 years old. Do you remember the day of the train? And the ride, the movement away. Oh, yes. Well, I didn't go immediately. The Jews of my time in Slovakia, 80 or 90 percent were taken away in the summer of 1942. We were actually exempt from that because my father was still running his business. But eventually we had to leave, and we wound up in Hungary. And Hungary was the last place that the Jews were still in good shape until 1944. But in 1944, the remnant of the Jewish population, a large Jewish population in Hungary, was deported to Auschwitz. And of course, I remember that very clearly. Your impressions of Auschwitz? Arrival in Auschwitz was a rather traumatic and dramatic. Because we arrived there, as it turns out, at night. And I've been in the scaffold car for three days and three nights and you want to get out, so the doors are opened up, slid open, and I get off the train, and I'm greeted by guards telling me to get out and everybody else. And as we're standing in front of the cattle cars in the distance, I see flames. And that's kind of scary. And you were with family at that time, yes? No. I was there with my grandfather and grandmother, my aunt and cousins, my brother, and we're standing on the platform next to the cattle car. And as the line moves, I was separated from my grandfather and grandmother, and they were marched off to the buildings with the chimneys and flames. Didn't know what it was. They were told, actually, that they're going to take a shower, after which they will get a warm meal, because they've been unable to wash and shower or anything like that for days. So this is the next uh, thing to do. Of course, they did not tell them that they're going to the gas chamber being murdered. 
and uh, I was separated. So my brother and I, and some other cousins, were eventually tattooed on my arm and eventually wound up in the slave labor camp of Auschwitz. And the slave laborer, what was your day like? I worked actually with horses, draining swamps and plowing the fields. And so the whistle blow early in the morning, maybe 4 o'clock or so. And we were marched out from the camp into the field where the horses were grazing, got the horses, bring them to the stable, clean them, feed them, give them water, and then out into the field and do the work till noon, at which time we would get some soup, continue till evening, and then march back to the camp, get a piece of bread, go to sleep, and do this uh, six, six and a half days a week. I just want to finish with the fact that some nights as we came back to camp, we would be marched to take a shower. And that has its own dangers because you were now naked going into the shower, and on many occasions there'd be a doctor in uniform look at you and determine if you should continue to live. It was called a selection. And, and you were you were aware of the selection process. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. There were no secrets in Auschwitz. What kept you going? The desire to live. If you survive, that was the objective, and maybe can even tell the story to the whole world what was happening there. To your point about the slow creep of it and the fact that you lived in a very beautiful community. And mm-hmm. this happened with people that you had in days, months, weeks prior mm-hmm. been friends with, had gone to the same events and festivities, the same beach, the same schools. How do we in our daily life, which we run at such a hectic pace now, how do we take the advice that you just gave? I think every so often we need to sit back and reflect and understand where we are and look at where we are and see, well, what if I listen to A, B, C, D? All these people, individuals, groups, countries that are saying what they're saying. I must make a judgment that they are promoting and pushing evil or good. Is social media as um, used as widely as it is today, Does do you feel that it helps or hinders? It's capable of helping, but unfortunately part of the problem is because it's so available to anybody and everybody. And anytime you have a grievance and you lash out, you can do it on the, on the media. And then you do that and you lash out against an individual or a group or you put everybody in the same bucket, so to speak, you can now create a tremendous amount of evil because it's so available. You say something on the media, and immediately it's there for all to look to look and listen. And there are those who will be unfortunately influenced by it and influenced for evil. Irving, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. That was Holocaust survivor Irving Roth from a January 2020 interview. January 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel.
Thanks to our guests, James Finn, Susanna Burley, and our reporter, Hallie Parker. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Prosal, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. Thank you.